The penultimate talk in the Let's Talk About Sex series, Developing Self-Control. Um, I don't know how many of you know how we decide on the sermon series here. Um, hopefully most of you will know we have a wider leadership team that includes Chris and Mark, who led the band this morning. Uh, and that wider leadership team meets once a month on a Monday evening, and then... On top of that, we have a core team. Um, that's a smaller group of us who work for the church. At the moment, that's Steve, Roe, myself, Flick, and Louisa. And we meet every Thursday morning for a couple of hours. Um, and when we are getting to the end of uh, a series of sermons, Steve will come in with some ideas for the next few months. Um, he'll have a list of topics that he thinks we should talk about, one of which was this, let's talk about sex. And generally, sometimes you'll have kind of seven or eight different ideas of things we could talk about that have something to do with this topic. And he'll lay them all out there, and we will look through them, and we'll pick kind of the best four or five. We generally try to keep the sermon series down to about a month. So we'll look through this big long list, and we'll decide on the best four or five. Um, so this happened a couple of months ago. Um, Steve came in with this list, and he said, uh, here's the things we're going to talk about. And uh, one of them is, uh, in February, we're going to do uh, Let's Talk About Sex. So here's seven or eight ideas. And uh, he passed these sheets around, and I picked up this list, and I read through them all. And uh, I quite deliberately put it down on the table in front of me. And uh, I looked at Steve, and I said, um, I don't fancy any of those. <laughs> You should do them all. But anyway, uh, here we are. Uh, so uh, let's talk about sex. Um, we're going to start by talking about sex from 3,000 years ago. Uh, Chris just read to us the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, it is one of the more memorable stories of the Old Testament, I think, despite how intrinsically awful it is. Um, the 22nd pricey is that David, the king of Israel, uh, the married king of Israel nonetheless, um, sees a woman bathing naked. Why exactly is she bathing naked? Well, more on that a bit later on. Anyway, David takes a bit of a fancy to Bathsheba, and because he's the king and kings can do this kind of thing, he summons her, he sleeps with her, he sends her away, he gets her pregnant. So what he does is he gets her husband, Uriah, killed, uh, he marries her instead, and everyone kind of lives happily ever after. Um, great. Um, Actually, it's a little different to that. A closer reading shows that Bathsheba comes off in a, in a bit of a better light. However, David, in this particular story, basically ends up looking basically as much of an idiot as the initial reading would suggest, to be honest with you. Um, there's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, um, and he looked at the language used in the verses that we've just read, uh, and it's fascinating. He says this. He says, the verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The woman then gets some verbs. She returned, she conceived. The action is so stark. There's nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring, of affection, of love, only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, in verse 5, she is still only the woman. It's not great, is it? There's not a lot of self-control here. Along with the story of Samson, this is one of the archetypal Old Testament stories about sex and self-control, or indeed sex and a huge lack of self-control. Um, 
As Steve said last week, this was a polygamous society, and David had been married seven times before the marriage to Bathsheba, Um, but all of his previous marriages had been very calculated. They'd all been about gaining political power, which was the way that it was done in those days. This one was totally different. In this story, he just acts out of lust. It had the potential to ruin him, to ruin Israel. Brueggemann talks a bit more about it. He can't overestimate how important this is. He says it's the intrusion of a sin into the life of David and Israel. It cuts so sharply that it rivals in power the original act of Adam and Eve. This is David. He's the boy who slayed Goliath, the hero. Just a few chapters before this, he's the man who brings back the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. He's the king. He's the hero. And he lets himself down. It's interesting to note the role of Bathsheba in this story as well. Um, As I said earlier, when David saw her, she was bathing naked. And this is sometimes used in terrible theology to almost justify David's actions as if she was somehow leading him on. Um, However, the verse 4 that Chris read said that she was purifying herself from her monthly monthly uncleanness. Um, There are two reasons that this line is there. Firstly, it's to prove that David is the father of the subsequent child. It's about as close as the Old Testament can get to a DNA test, I guess. Um, But it's also there to show that there was a reason for her to be bathing naked. It was part of her monthly ritual. Um, The reason it's there is it's interesting to note that at no point in this story is any blame attributed to Bathsheba. This is considered to be solely David's fault. And it's particularly interesting given the culture of the time, isn't it? That women were deemed to be second-class citizens. If you could blame the woman for anything, you would blame the woman for anything. But this is not just Bathsheba getting away with it, but she's a commoner taking no blame in what is an instance of somebody sleeping with the king. So you have the male king on the one hand and a female commoner on the other hand. And at no point in any of these recollections is any of the blame attributed to the woman. There's one more thing about Bathsheba. I'm sure lots of you will know that she eventually becomes part of Jesus' family tree. And in Matthew, it goes through this genealogy, this list of people who have preceded Jesus. And in the book of Matthew, in chapter 1, she's just known as the wife of Uriah. All the other women are known by names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Mary. But Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. And over the years, some feminists, both male and female, have asked the question of this. They've had problems with it. Why can she not be Bathsheba? Why is she not a woman in her own right? Why is she the wife of Uriah? Why is she owned by somebody else? It's actually very deliberate on the writer of Matthew's part. And it relates back to this story in 2 Samuel. The author in verse 26 refers to her as the the wife of Uriah very deliberately He's very deliberately making the point that she was married. She was off limits to David. He has done something wrong here by sleeping with her. It's quite subtle, but he's very clearly pointing out another of David's flaws. So what we have here is a story of a man who not only professes a deep faith in God, but has seen God at work in his life in incredible and miraculous ways. Let's remind ourselves again that as a boy, he threw a stone at a giant and killed him. 
He's seen God work in incredible ways, but he still can't control himself. Rather than being self-controlled, David allowed sex to control him. There is an aside, though. The last thing to notice from the story is that God doesn't write David off. There is no sin that's too big to come back from, even if that's adultery that leads to what is, in essence, murder. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of contrition. It's his song of repentance after Uriah's death. God forgives David, and later he and Bathsheba go on to have another son, Solomon, who becomes one of Israel's greatest kings. The sad thing, though, is that we have this story and other similar stories written down in the Bible as the ultimate in cautionary tales. But if we're honest, 3,000 years later, not a lot's changed. When I was 13, my parents and about 30 others left the church that my family had always gone to, that my grandfather had been a part of for 50 years, because the pastor of the church in his 50s was having a relationship with an 18-year-old girl in the worship group. A few years later, the youth leader in the new church that we went to wasn't there one Sunday morning, and he never turned up again, and it turned out he was having an affair with the secretary in work. Both of them were married. My sister's church uh, went through turmoil a few years ago when it was found out that the guy who set the church up, a massive church, had been having an affair with his PA for the last 20 years. 3,000 years on, not a lot's changed. Now, it would be really easy to stand here and condemn these people, wouldn't it? It'd be really easy to stand here on a Sunday morning in a church and say, well, it's simple, isn't it? Shouldn't have had a phase. David, my old church leader, all those people, they shouldn't have had a phase. It's simple. They should have just controlled themselves. It's all about self-control. But you know and I know that the reality of this situation is that it is so much more complicated than that. I know people who have had affairs. Friends of mine have left their husbands and left their wives after having affairs. What I know about these people is that they are not terrible people. They are good people who made stupid mistakes. Stupid mistakes that have irreconcilably damaged their relationships. It is not as simple as we make it out to be. A few years ago, uh, a guy called Chris Hoon, who was a, a former Lib Dem MP, he was in court over charges of perverting the course of justice. Um, he let his wife take responsibility of some speeding points that should have been his. But in the time between the offence and the court case, Hoon and his wife had divorced because Hoon had had an affair. And as part of the hearing, the content of some text messages sent between Hoon and his son, Peter, who was 18 at the time, were released. In July 2010, just after he found out about his dad's affair, Peter sent him this message. You are the most ghastly man I have ever known. On Christmas Day in the same year, Chris Hoon wished Peter a happy Christmas and tells him that he loves him. Peter's reply, I hate you. F off. In May 2011, Hoon wishes Peter well with his exams. Don't text me, you fat piece. That one was sent a year after the affair. There was still no change in Peter's response. Stephen told me about a radio program that he took part in where an atheist raged about the, the Ten Commandments. 
They were an affront to modern society, a controlling God trying to control his subjects and make sure that they didn't have any freedom, any fun. The overriding sentiment was, don't tell me how to live. And then Steve said that the commandments weren't the work of a control freak, but they were guidelines from a loving God who cared for his people and used this one, do not commit adultery, as his example. This is not God saying, I don't want you to have fun. This is God saying, I'm looking out for you. I know the pain that this will cause. Pain like Chris Hoon is feeling. Pain like whatever his text messages say, Peter Hoon, the son, is feeling. Pain like my friend whose husband left us six years ago still feels every single day. The message of the seventh commandment surely is don't commit adultery because I'm looking out for you and I don't want you to have to go through this. And I know that the story of David Bathsheba is a story about adultery, but if this idea of people struggling with self-control applies to those in marriages, then it applies probably even more so to those who aren't married, whether that's those not in relationships and struggling with the issue of casual sex, or those in committed relationships who have decided to wait until they're married to have sex. And I appreciate that we have another category, again, those in committed monogamous homosexual relationships for whom that hasn't even been an option until the last couple of years. Now, I'll admit that this is probably the bit that shouldn't be my subject area. The last time I was single was in 2001, and a lot of you lot were probably in primary school, I would imagine. The only people in those days who phone partners on the internet were IT geeks, and smartphones hadn't been invented even, let alone Tinder. Anyway, here I am. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about this and chatting to a lot of people about whether dating culture has changed for Christians over the last 15 years. Um, I did a lot of reading out about it and I found uh, a survey um, on the statistics of the number of Christians having sex before marriage and how that's increased over the last few decades. Um, I read one article which said that a study had been done in the US of 16 to 29-year-old active Christians who would self-identify as evangelical or fundamentalist, and over 80% of them had had sex before marriage. Maybe it is because I'm getting on. Maybe I am naive, but I thought that was a pretty high number. But it's never talked about in church, is it? We never talk about this. And I think it's probably, maybe, because Christians historically make such a big deal out of sexual sin. It is hugely inflated, seen as being the be-all and end-all, the most important thing in the whole world. I think probably part of that has something to do with wider culture. Sex is a constant theme, isn't it, of everything from TV shows to songs to advertising. There are few products that don't use sex to sell in some way, shape, or form. Um, But a few years ago, I wrote some articles for a Christian website that was aimed at people in their 20s and 30s and um, had to do some marketing for them and looked at their statistics and found that 19 out of the top 20 most read articles on the whole website were about sex and relationships. I think if as Christians we give it too high a priority, we fall into the trap of following society's view that sex really is the be-all and end-all. I heard um, Richard Raw, who's a Catholic priest, talk about this once, and he said, the body-based sins are the biggies. You can be greedy, 
You can be deceitful, anything like that, but don't you dare commit sexual sins. Malice, ambition, greed, consumerism, that's what we need to talk about. Don't misunderstand this. Richard Raw is obviously not saying that sexual immorality is not important. He was saying that we grade sins. Oh, that's just a little white lie. That's okay. Everybody does that. You don't really give much of your money away to the church. That's okay. Don't worry about that. Stick that little box over here. You're sleeping with your girlfriend. That's the end of the world. It's useful to look at the example of Jesus, isn't it? There are four stories in the whole of the Gospels where Jesus talks about sex and relationships. However, out of the 39 parables that there are, 11 of them are about our attitude towards money and how we spend it and what we do with it. One in every seven verses in the whole of Luke are about our attitudes towards money. But we're fixated on the sex thing. But equally, I don't want to go too far the other way and become less a fair about sex outside of marriage. In fact, I'm not sure that the problem is necessarily what the church teaches about this topic, but it's much more about how the church teaches it. Um, I don't know what your experience is like, but mine is that you'll get one of two approaches. The straightforward one, don't have sex outside marriage because it's a sin, end of conversation, move on, let's talk about something else. Or you'll have the one which only cares about consequences. If you have sex, you might get the woman pregnant. And if you do, then obviously your life will be over. That will be the end of it. It's like that thing in soaps where somebody gets offered cannabis and you just know that three episodes later they'll be dying of a heroin overdose, don't you? You know, All we can do is look at the worst thing that could possibly happen and not look at any useful thing at all that might come out of this. I don't think that either of those approaches are helpful, partly because they just make single people feel particularly rubbish and particularly judged, and partly because for many their instinct is to find a way around a rule. If all you're doing is you're saying that this is a a rule that should not be broken because this is a rule that should not be broken, it it doesn't really help anyone. People don't worry about the rules that they break as long as they can get away with it. It's the reason why some people carry on watching porn. They know they can get away with it. If it's just a rule, if it's not about your whole life, you can try and get around it. I think we need to look beyond the legalism and ask what's really happening here. What is this really about? And sometimes it's really straightforward, I think. The girl who has a chronic lack of self-worth and needs the validation from another so sleeps around. Or the guy who actually fears he isn't strong enough to commit to a long-term relationship so has a succession of short-term flings. Sometimes it's just a question of identity, of knowing who you are, of knowing that you're made in the image of God. But sometimes it's more complicated. I don't know how highly you value sex. You might be sitting there thinking that everything I've said so far is rubbish. It it just doesn't matter that much. It's just not that important. It's just a bit over the top, everything that I've been saying. It's just sex. But for me, I'm not sure that it can ever just be sex. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you or people you know can have sex and it's not a big deal. But I can only talk from my own experience and my experience that it is just more important than that. Tom Wright takes it even further. He says, there is no such thing as casual sex. He says, in this area, we discover what we discover throughout human relationships, that things are far more complicated and far more fraught with more difficulty, more puzzles and more paradoxes than we might have imagined. Sexual activity burns a pathway into the core of our human identity and self-awareness. It's you sharing your very identity with someone. This is who I am. 
not just literally, but metaphorically naked in front of somebody else. I wonder whether this is part of the reason that we need to talk about sex and whether this is part of the story we need to tell about it. This is why self-control is important. It's not so that you can keep some arbitrary rule or feel like you've won some sort of prize because you've managed to get to your wedding night without having sex. It's because it's an integral part of who we are. We shut everyone else out. We shut out all the noise around us and we say, this is it. Out of the seven billion people on earth, it's just you and me. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, forever. Well, that's the aim anyway, isn't it? That's the ideal. But I'm aware that there'll be people who, here this morning, who wanted that to be them who desperately wanted to share in that ideal, but it hasn't just worked out like that. And please believe me, the last thing that I want to do this morning is to make you feel judged or make you feel condemned for any of this. I think some aspects of Christianity have done a good enough job of that kind of judgment and condemnation over the years. But if we're about anything, surely we're about grace, we're about fresh starts, and we're about renewal. We're about a God who says this morning you can leave all of that stuff behind. Here's another quote from Richard Raw. If you read the gospel text carefully, you'll find that the only people Jesus seems to exclude are those who are excluding others. Exclusion might be described as the core sin. Don't waste any time rejecting, excluding, eliminating, or punishing anyone or anything else. Everything belongs, including you. Everything belongs including you. So, quickly as we finish, if we're starting again, let's go back to self-control. How can we practically take steps to move forward and not repeat the same old mistakes? Um, There are tons of possible answers to this, so in the essence of trying to get us done before lunchtime, I'll just pick two. Firstly, look long-term. The website that I mentioned earlier I did some writing for once tweeted a link to a blog post written by a married pastor in Ohio where he talked about the rules that he has for not having an affair. Um, He says that he refuses to have lunch or ride in a car alone with a female, uh, which, let's face it, is a bit mental, isn't it? Um, And secondly, he shares with his wife Every single email sent to him by another woman, which, let's face it, is definitely mental, not to mention surely awful for his poor wife. Um, Anyway, so they tweeted a link to this blog, and I replied to this uh, tweet, and I said, only last week did I manage to have lunch with a female friend and not sleep with her. Go me! Um, The thing about putting arbitrary boundaries on platonic relationships misses the whole point, doesn't it? Boundaries don't stop affairs. Boundaries might make affairs more difficult, but that's about it. The guy who shares every email with his wife could just tell the girl he's having an affair with to text him. He could just set up a new email address. The boundary is not the thing here that's going to sort it out. I wonder if a better idea is to look long-term. In the immediate moment, try to remember the bigger picture. So you're in this moment where everything seems exciting. It seems right because you're with this woman and she's so much better because she understands you and your wife. All you do is argue and since the kids came along and you've had a couple of glasses of wine and and this and this and this. and, 
and stopping and taking a step back and being able to look long term and see the bigger picture. Remembering that, yeah, marriage isn't easy, but you've promised to forsake all others for the rest of your lives. Remember that the grass will always seem greener on the other side, but remembering the heartache that your actions would cause. And no, of course it isn't easy. Show me a man who says he's never been attracted to another woman since he got married, and I'll show you a liar. We have to be honest with these things. It happens to everyone, but you've always, always got the option not to act on it. Marriage can be difficult, of course it can, but taking the instant gratification route rather than looking long term is the cause of the breakdown of all kinds of relationships, isn't it? I think it's symptomatic, maybe, of our society that wants everything now. It wants to microwave relationships when they should be slow-cooked. Let's remember the big picture. Let's try and look long-term. Secondly, single, engaged, married, whatever, I think it's much easier if the self-control doesn't only rely on the self. It's much easier if you've got someone to talk to about it, someone you trust, someone you can confide in. If you know you have a trusted friend who will ask you about the thing you do that you don't want to do anymore, you're less likely to do it. Let's talk about this. And finally, very briefly as we finish, I just want to say one more thing. Let's not get too fixated on this stuff. Clearly, this is a hugely important subject, but let's not let it totally define us. Our sexuality is just a part of who we are. Yeah, of course we should look to develop self-control, but we should also remember that this is just one of Paul's fruits of the Spirit that we find in Galatians. If we really want to make a difference, if we really want to bring the kingdom of God to Waterloo, we should also work towards the rest. Let's not forget joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and love.